Well, it's good to see everybody here once again this morning. And again, those of you that are with us online, just thank you for being here today. We may have to change our approach uh, for the next two or three weeks going forward. Uh, We're going to make those decisions kind of a week at a time, see what the Lord leads us to do and how situations are on the ground. But wherever you may be this morning, we're thankful to be able to give you a good word uh, today that Jesus Christ is Lord. And uh, he is Lord indeed. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. As you open your Bibles with me this morning, take out a sermon guide. I'm going to use several scriptures from around the Bible uh, today. If you're new to Hillcrest today, you have joined us right in the middle of a study of the most significant beliefs of the Christian faith. This is kind of a Christianity 101 Uh, review from the pulpit of our church in these important days. We're addressing the question, what is it that a Christian actually believes? What do you have to believe in order to be an orthodox Christian? The framework of our study is uh, a statement of faith that's been in use by the church for over 1,800 years. It's called the Apostles' Creed. In fact, it's probably the oldest comprehensive statement of faith in the history of the Christian church. So if you're somewhat new to Christianity, or maybe you're a novice when it comes to matters of faith, uh, the Apostles' Creed, I think, for you as well as for all of us, can be a very useful uh, tool. Uh, Today, after having spent a couple of weeks in the first part of the Apostles' Creed, looking at God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. We move today into what will be a multiple-week study of the longest single section of the Apostles' Creed, and that, of course, has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you take the Apostles' Creed, you can divide it into triads, three parts. The first part deals with God the Father. The second part deals with God the Son. The, The last part deals with God the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit through the church uh, to accomplish God's redemptive purpose. And so it's broken down kind of nicely, but if you break it up into triads, you'll find that the great bulk of the creed has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Uh, Several months ago, I did a series from this pulpit on the questions Jesus asked. How many of you remember that series? We looked at some of the most important questions that Jesus ever asked, And I saved the best for last in that series where Jesus asked to Peter this question, which is the most important question that can ever be asked of anybody. Who do you say that I am? There's not a more important question for you to face, contemplate, and ultimately answer than that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, the Apostles' Creed gives us a response to that question. When it begins this way, I believe in in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who is our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Now, if you add up all the words in the Apostles' Creed, there's only 108 words in the Apostles' Creed. And of the 108 words in the Apostles' Creed, 68 of them are used to describe or define some part of the life of Christ. That's two-thirds of the entire Apostles' Creed devoted to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is very telling, I think. It demonstrates that there is a reason 
that we call ourselves Christian. The Welsh theologian W.H. Griffith Thomas wrote a book many years ago, and the title of his book was Christianity is Christ. That's a great title. Spot on, because unlike other religions, uh, there can be no Christianity without Christ. Nobody would ever write a book that said Buddhism is Buddha. Because you can be a practicing Buddha, Buddhist and not know a thing about Buddha. Buddha has nothing to do personally with your life. Nobody would ever write a book that says Confucianism is Confucius. Because it wouldn't be true. Because you can be a practicing Confucianist, a Confucianist without knowing anything about the person of Confucius or having Confucius involved in your life in any way, which would be impossible because like Confucius is dead. And, and the same is true about Islam. Nobody would ever write a book that says Islam is Muhammad because you can be a practicing Muslim without any personal influence from Muhammad himself. But you can't make that claim about Jesus. There's no way to divorce the person of Christ from the practice and teaching of Christianity. Christianity is Christ. It's about a relationship with a leader, a savior, who is not dead but very much alive and invested and involved in the life of everyone who follows him. So being an orthodox Christian certainly means having a right view of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is talk about that for a few minutes this morning. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a right view of Jesus Christ? Well, I could write a 500, 600,000 page book to answer that question. But let's see if we can't reduce it down to the basic stock this morning. Let me give you three things based on this opening salvo about Jesus from the Apostles' Creed that helps us to define a correct view of Jesus. You have to believe three very important things about him. First of all, we believe that Jesus was human born. That's kind of where we begin. The creed begins its emphasis on Jesus by identifying him as God's only what? God's only son, that's right. Jesus is the divine son of God. And that is a very frequently used identifying marker concerning Jesus that you find used all throughout the Gospels and even beyond the Gospels through many of the letters of the New Testament in order to help us understand the identity of Jesus Christ. Near the beginning of John's Gospel, for example, you have one of the most loved and memorized verses of all of Christian history, John 3, 16. Say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his only what? God gave his only son. And it's interesting that near the end of the gospel of John, you have that near the beginning of the gospel of John, but near the end of the gospel of John, the apostle clarifies the critical purpose of why he even recorded the gospel in the first place. That's John chapter 20, beginning in verse 31. But these things, are written in his gospel, the gospel of John. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, when it comes to Jesus being the Son of God, probably the first thing that most people think of when that, when that title about Jesus is used is that he was born. Because a son, a child, 
always comes into the world through birth. And so we tend to think, okay, that Jesus is human. Jesus was born, that he was a human being. And certainly he was that. In fact, Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ was fully human in virtually every respect. Certainly Jesus had a human birth. We celebrate it on the calendar every year, right? It's called Christmas. So we know Jesus was born as a human, Galatians 4 and 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God, what? Sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those who were under the law so that we, we might receive adoption as sons. But here's the thing. The fact that Jesus was human born does not imply that he's a human being like every other human being. Mostly so, but not in every single way. In fact, in many ways, Jesus is just like you and me, right? Uh, He was born a baby, had human parents, raised by his parents to adulthood. In fact, we learn in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus had a boyhood, and that boyhood required training, and that Jesus grew in his mind. He had to be taught differential equations and calculus and things of that nature, just like any other boy. He had to grow and he had to learn. He required education. He required training and growth. He had full emotions. Did Jesus laugh at funny things? Did Jesus cry at sad things? Did Jesus grieve at the loss of loved ones? Sure he did. He had a full range of emotions. He laughed, he cried, he sorrowed, he grieved. Jesus loved others as we love others. He became frustrated by others. Can I have an amen? I know that never happens with you. No, Jesus became frustrated with others. Jesus lost his temper, never in a sinful way, never out of control, but Jesus got uh, frustrated. He got angry. He was hungry. He had to eat, which made him a good Baptist, right? He loved to eat. He got thirsty and needed a drink. Like at the woman at the well, right? He was tired, hot, needed to rest, and needed a drink. He became tired, weary. He laughed, he cried, he did all those things. Ultimately, he bled, and he died. The only thing missing from the humanity of Jesus was sin. He never sinned. In all points tempted as we are, in all points like us, yet without sin. And it had to be that way because Jesus was sent by God the Father on a specific purpose, namely to become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus had to be born and Jesus had to live without sin. Otherwise, he would have been disqualified in terms of becoming the atoning sacrifice for sinful people like all of us by hanging and dying on the cross because one sinful human being cannot atone for the sins of other sinful human beings. In fact, this is one of the important reasons why Jesus' humanity was necessary. It was necessary because we needed a sacrifice. Otherwise, we have no hope. Animal sacrifices can only cover human sinfulness for a period of time, and then you have to do it again, and you have to do it again, you have to do it again. Well, what happens if you die before you got to it again? You're in big trouble with a holy God. And so God had to become man in order to become this perfect propitiation, this perfect sacrifice, a lamb without 
spot, or blemish. Jesus never could have died on the cross as our atoning sacrifice if he had never become a man. The theologians call this the redemptive necessity of the humanity of Christ. The Bible says, look at these selected passages just from the book of Hebrews, and I could have listed a dozen verses out of Hebrews. Verse 22 of chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sin. So we got to have the shedding of human blood in order to have an atoning sacrifice. Verse 26, as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Therefore, Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Y'all see why Jesus had to become a man? Why Jesus had to be made like us? Why he had to be, become like us? Jesus was born under, of a woman under law in order to redeem those who were under the law. So he had to come as a human in order to die as a human, yet without sin. So this is a very important start. We needed that necessary sacrifice, and this is why Jesus became man. But it's important to note at the same time that as son of God, Jesus was not only human born, that's only half the picture. Secondly, we believe Jesus was God in flesh. Human born, but God in flesh. I remember as a young teenager understanding this for the first time. And I've, I've never forgotten it. My Sunday school teacher, I was probably a freshman or sophomore in high school. And my Sunday school teacher, Fred Dennis, one of the smartest men I ever knew, now with the Lord. We were studying in Galatians, high school boys in Sunday school. He was a senior adult at the time. But it was like he'd walked with God. It was like he was there with Paul. It's like he knew Paul. In fact, I wanted to ask him. He would start to wax about Paul and I want to say it was like you were with him. And one time he said, well, I was. Didn't you know he was kidding around? But I'll never forget the day he said, boys, Jesus was God. I'd never heard a preacher, to my recollection, ever say it that pointed. Not like God. I'd heard son of God, son of man, all those things. But he just looked at us and he said, never forget, Jesus was God. And absolutely he was. God in Flesh. Remember from our initial uh, message in this series that we worship a triune God. How, how many gods do we worship? Say it out loud. One. Very good. I'm so thankful you didn't shout three because you would have been a polytheist at that point. You need to move to India. Uh, no. Uh, we worship one God, but one God who is three persons at the same time, not three persons at different stages. One God, three persons at the same time. You say, well, you need to explain that to me. I can't do it. Nobody can fully understand that. That's why it's called a mystery. And yet that's what the Bible clearly teaches. God is Father. God is Son. God is Spirit. And all three of those, of course, are shouted out in the Apostles' Creed. It's important to realize that when the biblical writers use the term son of God, what they're really saying is God the son. 
That's a better way to say that. Jesus is the divine son of God. But you need to understand that's a statement of deity drawn from the Old Testament to indicate that Jesus is not a man like any other man. He is God the Son, fully human and yet fully God at the same time. Sometimes we refer to Jesus as the God-man hyphenated. That's who he is. He's the God-man, fully human, fully divine, fully God. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, as the creed does, we are not just saying that he's one among many sons of God. We are children of God by faith. But no guy in here is a son of God with a capital S. There's like only one of those. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we're saying he's the unique Son of God, and there ain't nobody else like him that ever has been. Unique Son of God, sent by God for a specific purpose, but not created by God. Everybody hear me say amen. Jesus is not a created being. And that's part of the challenge sometimes with the Son of God language and with the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ, because sometimes we might be led to believe that Jesus was a creation of God or that Jesus was the offspring of God in some way. And that's why Brother Fred Dennis's statement to me was critical in the shaping of my theology, and I've never forgotten it. Jesus was God, every much God as God the Father. at the core of who he was. Now, his birth was the beginning of Jesus, but only in his human dimension. His birth was not the beginning of Jesus because Jesus as God is what? Eternal. No beginning, no ending. And it's with that reminder that John begins his gospel in the first chapter of the gospel of John. Let's look at some selected verses beginning with John 1.1. A couple of weeks ago, we read Genesis 1-1 that says what? Together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, notice how John 1-1 begins, same language. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, capital W, the Word was with God. And say the next phrase with me, together. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So did Jesus exist before his birth in Bethlehem, yes or no? John says absolutely yes. He was in the beginning that had no beginning, together with God. And the Word was God. And then notice verse 14, and the Word became what? Flesh. Well, we've already established the Word was God, and now we learn the Word became flesh, which means what? God became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, of course, by identifying Jesus as the Word, capital W, John's calling attention to a philosophical concept that existed in the first century Greco-Roman world that every Jew, Greek, or Roman would have instantly understood the minute that he used it. Sometimes we send people to the Gospel of John. You need to read the Gospel. You new Christian, read the Gospel of John. And then the first thing they hit is one of the deepest things they'll ever read in the Bible. 
The Gospel of John is simple on the one hand, but incredibly profound on the other, and it needs a little explanation in places like right here, because that word was a philosophical concept. The, Gre- the Greeks and the Romans, it's logos in the Greek New Testament, word. We get our English word logical from it. And the Greeks understood the logos as kind of the, like the ordering principle behind the universe, the world, and life as we know it. Now, they didn't know what it was, and they couldn't identify it. It, it kind of was like the force in Star Wars, this powerful thing, but nobody knew how to define it, and nobody knew how to explain it. But there has to be something behind everything that is, and they called it the logos, the logical order of the universe. And then John starts writing his gospel, picks up this philosophical concept that was in the world and had been for centuries, and applies it to Jesus Christ. And by so doing, he tells everybody that's reading his gospel, here's the thing, I know what the Logos is, and it's not a what, it's a who, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was with God, he is God, and behind him everything that has been made was made, and his name is Jesus. That's the Logos. And certainly we believe that. It's not a concept, it's not a force, it's a person. Jesus, the Son of God come to earth. We call this what? The incarnation of God. God incarnate. Carne, flesh. I used a Spanish word this morning. Carne, meat, flesh. That's who Jesus is. God con carne. Amen. (laughs) God with flesh, but very God. Fully human, fully God. And this passage helps us to understand. God took on a body. And he made his dwelling among us. That's an interesting phrase. Made his dwelling. It literally means to erect a tent. To pitch a tent. And in fact it's our word for tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among his people. The eternal God of heaven and earth, erected his dwelling among us for a while. And that tent, that tabernacle, was his human body. And the purpose for doing that was to explain what God is like. How in the world could we possibly understand God without God coming to us? We'd be be no different than the Greeks and the Romans trying to figure it all out. We'd be giving it a name, the Logos. Well, what is that? I don't know, but it just is. No, we can know the Logos because he's come to be with us, to make his dwelling among us. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made God known, made him known, exegeted him, explained him. That's the big purpose in the coming to earth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. Remember A.W. Tozier's question from a couple of weeks ago? What comes to mind when you think of God determines everything else about you? You remember that quote? And so when someone asks that question to us as believers, what comes to mind when you think of God? The first thing that ought to come to your mind is Jesus. 
Pastor, what do you think about when you think of God? I think about Jesus. <laughs> when you get to heaven, Jesus is the only God you're going to lay your eyes on. He's the one that's going to stand before his judge. He's the one you're going to see. He's the one you're going to relate to. He's the one you're going to fellowship with. Jesus has revealed God, and the only way he could have done that is because he is God. Jesus is the window into the mystery of God. Or, as the great Dr. Martin Luther said one time, no other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. So everybody with me so far, say amen. Jesus was human born. Jesus was God in flesh. And then finally, what does it mean to have a right view of Jesus? We believe Jesus is Lord of all. Somebody say amen this morning. We believe Jesus is Lord of all. Is that not the rallying cry of the entire New Testament? From the announcement of the angelic host to the angels in Bethlehem, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, could you say it out loud, Christ the Lord. From the angelic trumpet all the way to the preaching of the apostles in the early church where Peter stands at Pentecost and preaches the most important Christian sermon in the history of the church now for 2,000 years. And he comes near the invitation of that message, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, let us all know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, obviously Christ and Lord are not proper names for Jesus. They're titles, divine titles. Jesus was not born uh, to Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Christ of Nazareth. Christ is not his name. Lord is not his name. Those are titles. The word Christ, of course, is a word that means anointed one. It's taken from the Hebrew Mashiach. We, we get our word Messiah from it. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're really saying Jesus Messiah. We sing that sometimes, Jesus Messiah, name above all names. Well, there's no difference in saying Jesus Messiah and Jesus Christ. It's the same word, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. And you remember that Messiah uh, personality was one the prophets talked about a lot. They looked forward to this soon coming king, this end times king, this deliverer, this savior who would lift Israel out of bondage and restore them to a position of glory. In fact, Jesus, when he did come, uh, went so far on not one but many occasions to identify himself this way. For example, to that Samaritan woman at the well. I've talked more about that Samaritan woman in 2020 than I have in my old ministry. That passage is packed with stuff. But do you remember? They were sitting there, they got into this discussion about living water, and then it morphed into a discussion about worship and where you worshiped and how you worshiped. And the woman looks at Jesus and she says, Lord, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, I will tell us, or he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
Now, if I'd have been her in her place, I'd have fell backwards over down into the well when he said that. You talk about a bold, pointed statement. He just identifies himself. That guy you've been looking for, you've been hearing about for your whole life that our ancestors have been trumpeting for a century. I'm the guy. I'm the dude right here. And it was a claim. See, it's one thing for Jesus to say it, but he backed it up. Isn't that right? How do we know Jesus is Lord? Well, one way you know is from the attestation of his ministry. Powerful miracles. I mean, this was a Jesus that demonstrated power over nature by stilling seas and calming storms, turning water into wine. This was a <clears throat> Jesus that demonstrated power over disease by healing the sick and casting them out. And uh, this is a uh, a, a, a Jesus that demonstrated power over the devil, power over demons, who when he confronted them, fled the people that they'd been inhabiting. This was a Jesus who claimed to have the power to forgive sins and the power to judge the living and the dead. This was a Jesus who claimed to have omnipotence, all power over all the created order. When he said just before his ascension, what? All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. And can I add this morning, his authority extends to things like coronavirus. Jesus is Lord. If you're going to clap, clap and be happy about it. And for this reason, the Savior that Jesus is, is at the same time Lord. He is Savior Lord. It's all one concept. Don't divide it up. You can't divide it up. Well, I've accepted Jesus as Savior, and maybe one of these days I'll get around to, no, 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 you're not right with God. It's not Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. It's Jesus the Savior Lord. And that Jesus who is Savior Lord is authoritative and sovereign over every part of your life. That's what the word Lord means. Ruler, sovereign, boss. By the way, can I just add this morning, that's why most people will reject Jesus because they don't want a boss. They don't want a boss. Except them. <clears throat> There's some in the room today probably, some watching online. You want to be the boss. That's going to keep more people out of heaven than anything else. But there's no wobble room here because of who Jesus is. All authority has been given to me. Our responsibility is to see that, acknowledge it, and submit ourselves to it. Because of who he is as the divine son of God and because of what he's done by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, he's the highest authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore... Therefore, Paul says in that magisterial passage in Philippians 2, therefore, God has highly exalted him to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That verse teaches us that one day everybody's going to say it. 
Everybody's going to say it one day. And you know what? In the days of the early church, there were only a select handful that said it. And they were some of the bravest people on the planet. Only the faithful said Jesus is Lord. Because it's a very dangerous thing to do. Because they lived in a world where only Caesar was Lord. It was on every coin. Caesar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. You'd have to go in regularly into a cultic place of worship where the fire was burning and you'd grab a pinch of incense and throw it in the fire. And you'd have to say that. Caesar Curia, Caesar is Lord. Emperor Caesar, God and Lord. So to stand on any street in the Roman Empire and declare Jesus is Lord The great theologian, the British theologian N.T. Wright says, that's like dressing yourself in a red cape and going out into a field with an angry bull. It'd be like sitting around a dinner table in 1936 in Berlin, Germany, where everybody, when they sat down, said, Heil Hitler, and you say, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. Kind of a dangerous thing to say. And it's not quite as dangerous for Western Christians to make that proclamation today. But it can still carry a price tag, can it? There's still repercussions when you do that because whenever you confess Jesus is Lord, you you make a declaration, nobody else is. He's Lord and nobody else is. That's what got Christians thrown to the lions and boiled in oil. You say Jesus is Lord, you delegitimize every other religion with that one statement. When you make that statement, you declare that politicians don't have it all together and they don't call all the shots like they think they do. Neither do the business magnets, the mega companies of the world. I mean, when you declare Jesus is Lord, you announce there's no territory no possession, no relationship, no corner of your life or anybody else's life that does not belong to Jesus and over which Jesus as Lord does not rule. Now, to be sure, Jesus is no dictator. He's no tyrant. He's not a mean-spirited ruler. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, His love endures forever. Jesus is a tender, compassionate, loving, serving, gracious, hospitable, embracing Lord. He's a Lord who loves, but make no mistake, Jesus is still Lord of all. And because he's Lord, man, We talk about having gospel conversations. That changes everything about the way you have gospel conversations. It is not a gospel conversation to go to someone and say, you know what, you ought to try Jesus. Try Jesus? That makes Jesus sound like the new appetizer at the Grand Marlin. No, we don't ask people to try Jesus. Gospel conversations declare Jesus is Lord. And we encourage people in our evangelism, recognize it. And submit your life to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord because it's the best life of all. That's what Paul said in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? See, there is no salvation apart from a confession that Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus comes in our midst today here and all across the country and around the world even. And he asks the same question, who do you say that I am? It's the eternal question. The Apostles' Creed answers it head on, and so should you. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, my Lord. This is God's Word, and let all who agree say, Amen. Amen.